We're on week 11, the final week of uh, this series. I hope you're not too sad. We're finishing up our series today on the Ten Commandments, uh, which we're finding uh, are a whole lot more than just commandments. Uh, maybe we've been doing ourselves a disservice all these years, sort of couching them in, in this dry and cold word, command. Uh, instead, we find actually Scripture treats them as sayings, uh, a conversation between father and child, uh, this child that uh, God had just brought out of Egypt and was now trying to get Egypt out of them. Uh, in this conversation about how they would fully express uh, the image of God in them, uh, more fully become themselves in community with one another, uh, expressing the kingdom of God and eschewing the empire of Egypt. Right? This is uh, it's a powerful moment. Uh, not just even in the history of, uh, of, of the people of Israel, but might we say a powerful moment in the history of the world. It's very formative. Uh, it changed, well, changed everything in a lot of ways. Uh, because what we find is that these things, this conversation was really reflective of the heart of God uh, as he wants what's best for his children. It's reflective of the heart of God and it's revealing of the heart of human beings. Uh, not the least of which is this last saying, this 10th saying, uh, at least in our way of counting. Uh, this is number 10. And uh, it's about coveting. And what could be more revealing of the heart than the problem of coveting? Uh, it's actually treated uh, kind of at length. We've been in this run of sayings that are just two words each, not murder, not lying, right? Uh, and now we come to uh, a much more fully expressed saying. Uh, it's said this way in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. It says, you shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's, neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Obviously, a much more full treatment. Um, it's as though God wants us to pause again, to think deeply about what's at stake here. Uh, because, as we know, this is the, the, the sort of uh, entry into a series of laws. You heard last week, there's over 600 of them, 613 to be exact. And most of the time, law is, uh, you know, legislative of things that you can see, things that could be measured externally. But not so with this 10th saying. Uh, this one is hidden away. Uh, this one is buried a bit. This, this one is one you could get away with. Uh, in a sense, what we're seeing is, is, a, is a significant transition in the tenor. Uh, instead of legislating the sort of external results, now we're looking at the heart. Or maybe we should say returning to a look at the heart, because really at the beginning of the Ten Sayings, we saw something pretty similar. What we're being uh, invited into here is self-reflection a reflection on what it is that's truly driving us, what our motivations actually are. And the truth is, that itself is, is, is kind of cultural, isn't it? Uh, we, we live in a culture, we live in a time that, that sort of baptizes every manner of desire that we might uh, find in our own hearts. Uh, we, we lionize our desires. I actually think about how this has shown up in small and simple ways in our culture. Uh, let me give you an example. My, my wife and I used to watch Project One Way. Please don't judge. Uh, but we, we, we select this show. 
Uh, probably still would, I guess. But uh, Project Runway, you know, it's like design, and it's they're very eccentric people, uh, and some somewhat entertaining, I guess, at that uh, at, at that level. But I remember being sort of just struck how this pattern found itself expressed every season. You get to the end, and there's this like moment where the judges, um, these uh, fashion icons. Um, they would ask the contestants, why do you deserve this, this opportunity, right? And the opportunity would be to actually get to make your whole line and you have a spread in a magazine and so forth. I, I don't mean to bore you, but there was this, this question of why do, you, why do you deserve this? And every single person led with, I want it. What does that have to do with anything? Are you good at this? I want it. Right? See how the baptism of the desire is, is forefront in our culture. And here we're being asked to think deeply about our desires, to think twice about our desires and the way they animate us. This reflection of what it is that's driving us, that's very countercultural in a world that says you are what you desire and don't let anyone take it from you, right? So here we are thinking twice asking ourselves questions at a, at a heart level, examining ourselves at the level of desire, finding that it does matter, not just what we do, like not murdering people, but why we do it. Perhaps we're learning the lesson when we look at this, like the older brother in the prodigal son story. He had done all the right things. What he had done was beyond reproach, but why he was doing it was rotten to the core. His desire turned out to matter. His coveting of the gifts that his father would eventually bestow upon him, those things had been eating at him those many years. It's easy to judge the younger brother of the prodigal son story. We see how his desires had taken him far east of Eden, but the desires of the older brother are just as problematic. And this is what we're asked to do. We're asked to uh, think again why are we doing things? What is it that's animating us? What is it that we're coveting in our actions? So let's, let's kind of work our way through this. We're going we're gonna to look at this 10th saying, knowing that it tells us not to covet, and we're going to just kind of look at it three ways. We're going to say, okay, what is it to covet? What does that mean? It's worth asking ourselves. Certainly, there are various synonyms we could leverage. So we're going to ask ourselves, what is it to covet? We're going to ask, why is that a problem? And then we're going to ask ourselves, what can we do about it? Or maybe, what has God done about it, perhaps? But let's start here. What is it? What is it to covet? Uh, probably it's not beyond you to start to leverage some synonyms. We might, we might think of the word jealousy. We might think of the word envy. We might think of even the word greed in a sort of relational sense. But I want to tweak that just a little bit for you. Because there's something extra that happens with the word covet that's not actually maybe found in other places. Uh, there, there's, there's something sort of uniquely negative about the word covet, actually. Uh, because if you think about the word jealousy, it's not always used negatively. Uh, God describes himself as jealous of his people, uh, meaning sort of vigilant and protective of his people. Um, and, and, and so there, there's a certain way we have to start to tweak our understanding. We can't just say coveting means being jealous. Here's how I want to describe it to you. I think this is a, a good way of thinking about it. Coveting is animated envy. Coveting is animated envy. 
It is envy that has now begun to express itself in your life, has begun to order your days, has begun to be the gravity that's pulling you in. It's changing your actions, your posture. Uh, it, it, it's begun to do damage of you, on you. Uh, I think that actually Jesus uh, talks about this. You may, you may remember this phrase coming from our Lord. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? Coveting is placing your treasure somewhere that you ought not to place it and then being pulled towards it. Pulled away from yourself. Pulled away from where God has you. Pulled in all manner of directions but towards the heart of God. Coveting is animated envy. And it has this corrosive effect. Augustine knew this. We've talked about this phrase before. Augustine used to say uh, that, that my love is my weight. Wherever I am going, my love is carrying me. He talks about love and desire like gravity. So think about coveting as gravity, as it's pulling you out of joint, out of joint with yourself, out of joint with the circumstances God has you in, out of joint with the relationships you ought to be healthy in. Coveting is this animated envy that seeks to, well, I think, tear you apart. It's, it's, it's this animated envy that does all kinds of damage. So here we have it. What, what, is the problem with, what is the problem with coveting? Well, I want to say it this way. I want to say it in a way that I think you would agree with at first blush. Coveting is very naturally corrosive of all relationships. It does damage to all relationships. And this is of utmost importance. We, we have a God who says, here, let me tell you what the meaning of life is. Let me tell you where flourishing can be found. In loving me with all your heart, soul, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. The God who is in relationship with us says the meaning of life is relational, and here is covetousness seeking to do damage to all of those relationships. I want to take a second just to examine the way that covetousness could damage our relationship with God, our relationship with self, and our relationship with others. These fundamental relationships that God has created us to be in are all damaged by this problem of coveting our neighbor's house, uh, coveting anything that belongs to our neighbor. Let's start with this. Let's start with the fact that coveting does damage to self. It is maybe sometimes subtly damaging, but in the end, disastrously damaging. And Jesus knew it. Jesus knew it, that it was the sort of thing that defiles you from the inside the sort of thing that eats you up. He said as much in Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, he's having a discussion with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are all kinds of concerned about what's going into people. They're worried about what people are eating and when they're eating it and what rituals they've gone through before they eat it. And Jesus says, you've got the wrong concerns. You keep worrying about washing the outside of the cup, but it's what comes out of a man that defiles him, that corrupts him that does damage to him, that, that, that eats him up. In the end of this run, he says this, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, 
Out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. This dream that God has for you of bearing his image and his likeness is defiled and damaged when we give sway to covetousness. When we give traction to covetousness in our life, it does damage. Probably you could sense it in yourself, how you maybe were at a party one Friday evening and everything was going well and it was actually quite a pleasant evening until you heard that your neighbor got that promotion. And all of a sudden you had spiraled out of control with envious thoughts, covetousness of their newfound situation. And I wonder if you noticed the way your own countenance began to deteriorate in conversation with the person you found yourself not only jealous of, but covetous thoughts arising about them. Can you remember a moment like that where there had been no reason for things to start to fall apart for you, and then something good happened for your neighbor, and then you started to spiral? Said this way, it makes no sense, but still it happens. Still it takes root. And when it takes root, when it becomes routine, when it's not just a random Friday evening, but actually a regular occurrence, not only does it damage our countenance in a moment, but it begins to erode our character. I think covetousness is corrosive of our relationship with ourselves. And here's another reason why not just because it actually damages our countenance in conversation or our character in the long run, but because it's a very subtle form of self-loathing. Can you pause on that for a moment? Covetousness is a very subtle form of self-loathing. It is this deep-seated, deeply-rooted belief that as you are, you are not enough. It is this very subtle lie that you are not yet worthy of love. That if only you had this thing, maybe it's a thing that your neighbor already has, but if only you had it, then you could say you are of value. But this grates against the entire message of the heart of God, who says, I'm leaving the 99 for you. Yes, you, who got so lost. All the other sheep managed to find their way, but you didn't, but I came after you. The one who preaches with his very life that he leaves nothing and no one for dead has said, you are of value to me. And yet here we are saying, but yet, I'm just not quite there yet. If only I had that job, or if only we had managed this uh, stock portfolio a little differently and we begin to covet a different situation, a, a different measurement of self. I think covetousness is a very subtle form of self-loathing. We'll later examine that this does damage even to our relationship with God. It, it, it throws us out of whack in, sense, in the sense of being able to trust our God. But here's something I want you to trust. He has deemed you we might even say made you worthy. I trust him. I trust that he's right about everything. 
Might that even mean he was right to love me? On, on some sacred and divine and inexplicable level, can't I trust him that I was worthy of his attention? That I'm worth more than many sparrows? But covetousness seeks to erode that. Covetousness seeks to, to unsettle that. Here's another thing that covetousness does when it comes to damaging the self. We looked at the fact that it, it, it damages the countenance and the character. We looked at it's this, this, this subtle form of self-loathing. But I think it's also self-limiting. It's self-limiting. When I begin to look over my neighbor's fence and I start to think, if only I was gifted in that particular way. If only if I could sing that note instead of these. If only I could play that instrument instead of this. Or whatever kinds of covetousness of gifting you have traveled with. Notice what happens next. You stop expressing your own gifting. So set upon someone else's gift, the fact that God made them a mouth in the kingdom and you are yet only an ear. And we say these phrases only. And then we're so covetousness of being the mouth that we stop listening. It's self-limiting. A place was made for you in the kingdom. And it damages yourself when you covet someone else's place in the kingdom. Peeking over the fence at the way that God has happened to gift them. Leaves your own gifts unexpressed. I want to say this, although it may sound harsh. Gifts left unexpressed are a curse. You were meant to express the very gifts he gave you, not meant to covet your neighbor's gifts. And these gifts that he's given you are meant to be fully, fully expressed. Yet we sometimes bury them, like in the parable of the talents. We bury them underneath a pile of jealousy and envy and covetousness. Yes, I think that covetousness is quite damaging to the self. And I want to say this, that the measure of any idea, the evaluation of any idea, finding out whether an idea was good or not, is to find out its impact on you. If I was consumed with a particular thought, with a particular idea, and coveting my neighbor was that consuming thought and idea, and I realized the way it damaged me, I must then realize that coveting is a bad idea. The measure of any idea is the impact that it has on you. Yes, covetousness is damaging of a relationship with self and also damaging of a relationship with others. You don't have to go far in Scripture to find just how damaging of our relationship with others covetousness is. Scroll through the Rolodex of Scripture in your mind. I wonder how far you get. Probably chapter 4 of Genesis. Probably you're already starting to go, ah, I know the one. Cain and Abel, and the way that covetousness deteriorated rapidly, spiraled out of control in Cain's life so much that he took the life of his own brother. The way that jealousy had taken root, God described it as, as sin crouching at his door in Genesis chapter 4. But you don't actually have to go much further, actually, to see the problem rearing its ugly head over and over. 
Perhaps you're thinking of Joseph and his brothers. Uh, Joseph had his own issues uh, and, and, and needed to be humbled, but not in the way that covetousness sought to humble him. His brothers that sold him into slavery and actually had hoped to do even worse. This is a routine theme in Scripture. Again, we already captured it when we talked about it in the prodigal son story, the way that jealousy ruined the relationship that the older brother had, not just with his younger brother, who had been so foolish, but actually with his father as well. Have you ever noticed the haunting ending of the prodigal son story? There's a party going on, and the older brother is outside the gate. He can't bring himself to come in. The way the covetousness has actually corroded his relationship with his father as he began to begrudge the gift that had been given to another, as he began to look at his brother as entirely unworthy of the gift. And this is what covetousness does. It's a subtle form of self-loathing, but it also begins to look at others and say, you're not worthy. It exchanges the centeredness of relationship that's ought to say, ah, another image bearer. God bless. Instead, we say, ah, an unworthy one. How could God have blessed you this way? This is corrosive of relationship, meant to love our neighbor, and here we are coveting. Coveting their gifts, and we have to remember and be reset in the fact that this, these are all gifts. In fact, Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? Receive as a gift. So when we look at our neighbors and we, 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 we are tempted to covet, we have to remember and be reset about this one fact, that what they have, they received. They received as a gift from the good gift giver. So what ought to be happening in our hearts when we look at the blessings of our neighbors, we ought to be reminded of the goodness of our God, the one who makes rain fall on the fields of both the righteous and the unrighteous. The rain itself ought to point us to the goodness of God, and instead we have allowed it to eat away at us, eat away at our relationship with our neighbor. In the end, it's also corrosive of our relationship with God. It's corrosive of our relationship with ourselves and with others and with God. In fact, Paul goes so far as to call it idolatry. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, he says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. In Galatians, he says that, that greed and jealousy and envy are a, a fruit of the flesh. Um, he calls it the opposite of love in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is a big problem. It, it, it's this, it's idolatry. It's the sign that we've begun to worship something other than God. Because instead of saying God's presence is what I need most, what my heart desires most, we've begun to say, if only I had this thing. That thing has captured your imagination in the way that only the heart of God ought to. This thing that you're coveting of your neighbors has begun to dominate your thinking, have a place in your life that ought to be reserved for only one. You've begun to worship this thing. It has become all-consuming. It has become 
animating. It has become your telos, your, your meaning in life. If I could just have that, even if I had to take it away from someone else. We've begun to say, my rest is found in that thing. My heart is restless until I have this particular vacation that I saw on Instagram. My, my heart is restless until I have that second home. My heart is restless until I have the car that I only drive on the weekends and I cover it up all nicely in the, in the garage otherwise. My heart is restless until I have that guitar that I've always wanted. My heart is, no. Can we not be reminded of Augustine that my heart is restless until I find my rest in him, him alone? You see how covetousness is this disastrous, damaging thought pattern when it comes to my relationship with God, all of my relationships. Covetousness is death masquerading as life. It promises the good life, and all it gives is a slow death. We have to be on the lookout. We have to be vigilant. We have to do something about it, or at least accept the one who has done something about it. So we talked about what is covetousness, and we asked, why is it such a bad deal? Now we have to ask, what can be done? But I want to actually proceed with caution here, because I think our temptation might be to swing the pendulum. This sort of immature way of thinking is quite prevalent where we say, well, here's a problem. I ought to just swing the pendulum, and whatever is on the opposite side, well, that's obviously a solution. Not so. Not so. History proves that the pendulum swinging from one side and one extreme to another is no solution at all. Whether we go from fascism on the one side or communism on the other, it just goes back and forth. We can't just swing the pendulum. Because here's the truth. God is not looking for you to extinguish your desires. That's not Christianity. We might be tempted to think so. We might say, my desires, my covetous desires were a problem. Let me swing the pendulum to the other end. Let me just not desire anything at all. That's not Christianity. That's Buddhism. That's different, kids. We have to be careful. God is not asking us to extinguish our desires or, or cease to exist as an individual. No, this is instead about the excavation of our true selves from the rubble of who we've settled for being, right? He's not asking you to cease to exist. He's asking you to become who you're really meant to be. He does not want you to extinguish your desires. He wants right desires to grow up in the soil of his love. So we have to be careful. We have to realize that there are, there are desires that are right and good. I actually think of this passage. Every time I think about this topic of desire and how sometimes desire are, is exactly right, how, how sometimes desire is exactly what God is calling for, I think of Romans chapter 9 when I think about this conversation. And we're not meant to cease to have desires. In Romans chapter 9, Paul is talking about how he's heartbroken how he has this desire that's chasing him around a bit, keeping him up at night. He has this deep desire that's animating him, that's got him traveling the globe as he knows it. It's this desire that his people would be found again in the fold, in the family of God. He says this, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish 
that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. See how he has a deep, deep desire. It's a redeemed desire. It's a, a truly baptized and righteous desire, but his desires have not been extinguished. He is zealous still. It's just now he's zealous for the kingdom. Zealous for the kingdom to be fully expressed. So how is it that he came to be able to have such healthy desires? Certainly it's the rescue of Christ. Certainly it's Christ who rescued him on the road to Damascus that took his covetousness of power and prestige and turned it into a person who could say, you know what, I'd give anything, even myself, for these people to know the freedom that is in Christ. But I think that we can see it even in his writing, the things that, that God produced in him, that he gave way to, that he gave root to in his life, that he made uh, habit in his life to rescue him from these covetousness. First, gratefulness. Gratefulness. Certainly, any number of social scientists can tell you about the power of being thankful, of gratitude. Maybe they've told you to have a journal and write down things you're grateful for. Perhaps your family has a pattern of uh, at dinner saying things you're thankful for in the evening, and maybe you've noticed a difference. Well, this is safely at home within Christianity. It is at the forefront where Paul says again and again, give thanks, gratitude. One such place is in Ephesians chapter 5, the antidote to covetousness is gratitude. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Gratitude as an antidote to covetousness. I think what you'll experience is something I've experienced. Covetousness says, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this lack. I don't deserve this gap in my life. I don't deserve this. Gratefulness says, I could never have deserved this. Such a subtle shift. Such a subtle shift. When you receive a gift and you say, ah, I could never have deserved this. It takes one from this corrosive, damaging, obsessive covetousness to humbled and rooted and thankful. Yeah, step one, gratefulness. I'm not sure these are actually in order, but it's the first one I wrote down. Step one, gratefulness. Paul, Paul said it would go a long way for us, and he was right. How about this? How about generosity? How about generosity as the antidote to covetousness? The human heart buried under the rubble of covetousness that seeks to gain undone by a generous heart that seeks the flourishing of another, that desires 
the flourishing of someone else. That's, that sees the flourishing of someone else as something we're blessed to participate in. How about that as an antidote for covetousness? Here's how it's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul again realizing what generosity does as it expresses the heart of God and its movement in our own lives. He says this, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided to give in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Not like the older brother who gave only so that he could get. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he supplies the seed to the, power, seed to the sower and the bread of, for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way. Covetousness corrodes. Generosity enriches. Gives you this opportunity to experience the heart of God. Here it says, being generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This tight, tight relationship of being generous and experiencing the generous heart of God something we can be thankful for. And third and finally, an antidote to the covetous heart, this covetous heart that seeks to erode our relationships, the very relationships we were born for. The third step is worship. In hindsight, I wish I had listed it first because I think it's the most important one. Have you ever read Romans 1 closely? Have you ever noticed what Paul says is the real problem here? He says, here's the real problem. We don't worship the right thing. He says as much in verse 21. It says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. All the problems we see in the world, all the things that keep us up at night, the anxiousness, the things that we might even find ourselves doing battle with, their beginning point was a worshiping of the wrong thing. What happens next in Romans chapter 1 is Paul says, and everything unravels. They worship the wrong thing, and then everything unravels. Those things that we would normally call sin are actually symptoms of sin. The sin being worship of the wrong thing. And then it expresses itself in all sorts of damaging ways. Guess what one of those ways is? Envy, covetousness, jealousy. Paul says, here's how I know things aren't the way they should be. We feel covetous thoughts. We, 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 we feel envious. He says as much in verse 29. Here's what he says of people who have been worshiping the wrong things. He says, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. Full of envy. The result of worshiping the wrong thing, of saying, that thing my neighbor has, that's the thing I want most. A bountiful harvest, a better stock portfolio, whatever it might be. That's the thing that we've begun to worship. And when we worship, it has disastrous results when we worship the wrong thing. 
And what does Paul flip it over and say the result or the, 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 the solution is? Well, if you're reading through Romans, he gets to 12 and everything changes. And perhaps you've even memorized these verses. You get to verse 1 of chapter 12 and you could say it in your heart. You say, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, with a thankful heart in response to all that God has done, what do we do? We offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, the true and proper worship, the, the solution to envy, the solution to covetousness, the solution to jealousy is not an extinguishing of your desires, not an entire losing of yourself in the shuffle of this world, but rather finding yourself in worship of that which is actually worthy of your worship that which is true life and not just death masquerading as life. Right? This is the solution. And guess what happens next? The reverse of all that you saw in chapter 1 is put on display in the loving and generous heart of the one who is now worshiping the right thing. Yes, verse 1 and 2 start with this idea. Live as a sacrifice. Worship truly and properly. And what do we find happens next? Living in community, accepting our roles. That's actually the next flow of chapter 12 where, where, where Paul describes us as a body function, functioning together. No longer in tension with one another because of covetous thoughts. And then he gets to verse 10 and he says, you know what? Now we're free to honor one another above ourselves. Not coveting our neighbor's situation, but honoring them in their situation. Or we get to 15, and instead of hearing that our uh, rival at work got the, the promotion and finding that it has undone our entire weekend, instead we say, ah, I can rejoice with you. Because I'm worshiping the one thing that's worthy of my worship, and I'm thankful for all that he has done to produce this worship in me, I can now rejoice with those who are rejoicing and not be limited by my jealousy, or corroded by my covetous thoughts. I think a community marked by those things, gratefulness, generosity, and true and proper worship, is the kind of place where well, no one would be afraid, where they could feel that being themselves is just exactly as free as they could ever be. And being exactly who God wanted them to be is the most joyous possibility there is. And I think in that situation, covetousness would sound strange, would begin to sound odd, would be such a far-off set of thoughts, an, an old way of living that we finally have found freedom from. That's my desire for you is to live like a, a community marked by generosity and true and proper worship. I desire that quite a bit. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We know that you're a good gift giver. We thank you for the gift of these 10 sayings that we've been studying. Thank you for the gift of this series. Uh, we confess that we have sometimes put our identity elsewhere, worshiped the wrong things, coveted, our neighbors' lives. Lord, set us free from that. Help us to be grateful and generous 
Help us to express your generosity as we truly and properly worship you. Lord, that, I believe, is freedom. I know that it's for freedom you have set us free. So let's, Lord, let's express that love together. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.